Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I mean, if you look at Hong Kong in 2008, I was there 17 times before we started flying horses there. 17 trips. That's how long it takes to set these things up. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I was going to sing a horse song and then I realized <laughs> that was probably not a good idea. Why the long face? <laughs> I'm going to see a man about a horse. <laughs> yes, we are talking horses today. I'm excited. We've been uh, having requests on the Facebook group to uh, start looking at equestrian and finally we got to start on it and we had a great conversation and we're really excited to talk about it but I, I want to tell you that I had an Olympic-ish moment this weekend where you can okay. say I did some refing of the roller derby in Columbus, Ohio and the halftime entertainment were some b-boys and b-girls. Oh no. <laughs> They are, and of course, they're little kids, so they're adorable. There are two things I noticed while watching them, because it would be, they'd have the music pumping, and they'd all stand in a line in the back, and then uh, somebody would come out and do a little solo, or they'd come out and do some duets and trios, and then go back in line. And I did think that, okay, some of them are doing cartwheels into moves, or handstands into moves, somersaults. There's a gymnastics element to it, so you can make a tie to sport like that. But then at the same time, I thought, wow, this also reminds me of folk dancing. When I was in college, I was in the folk dance troupe, and we do two shows a year. And every time you ended with a Ukrainian number, because the Ukrainian dancing has these huge show-offs, you know, the things where they kick and they spin and they do stuff on their heads and jump all over the place. So you always wanted that at the end because it got the crowd going. And we would do the same thing. We'd all stand in a semicircle and people would go out one at a time. And like, well, that is just what breaking is. So breaking is Ukrainian folk dancing? Urban. You... <laughs> okay, now here's my real question. Do you wear the headpiece? Yeah, 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 yeah. You had, uh, yeah, yeah. So we had, um, the, the costumes were always really involved. Then you definitely had the big headdress with the ribbons. 
Well, then you couldn't spin on your head if you had the headdress on. No, because on. the guys spin on their head. The girls just spin on their feet. Isn't but, that always the way? Yeah, right. The men get the flashy moves, but the women right. have to do all the work. Right. The Bulgarian costumes, they were from the Valley of the Roses area. So they had these huge headdresses that went, uh, they were plastic roses, but they went all the way down the back. It was just this big flowing flowered headdress. They were so basically, cool. you looked like a Kentucky Derby horse. Mm, that is a nice segue to our interview today. Today we are talking about horse transportation. So we went to the man, the genius, Martin Atok, who is managing director of Pete and Bloodstock, a global horse transportation company. And Martin has been transporting horses to the Olympics since Seoul 1988. And he's done every Olympic since then. And he does most of the major cups and uh, federation tournaments. And so he talked to us about what it takes to get a horse to the Olympics. Take a listen. How long do you spend on the road every year? I do over 200 nights in hotels. I mean, I've just done a seven week. I've just done seven weeks um, scooting back and forth between North Central America and the Far East, just scooting back and forth. And I'm here now for a couple of days, which is really nice. And then I'll go on Friday and I'll go back to Tokyo because I've got Tokyo all next week. So I spend a lot of time in the air, unfortunately. But that's just part of uh, of what I do because um, when I don't obviously load horses in my home office, and most of our time, 95 percent of our time is spent in the preparation of these operations, not the execution. The execution is minimal. It's the preparation of which, where all the time goes in, which no one actually sees what we do, but it's all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, if you look at Hong Kong in 2008, I was there 17 times before we started flying horses there, 17 trips. That's how long it takes to set these things up. Now, where is home? Where is home base? I am in Germany at the moment. I'm about 25 minutes north of Dusseldorf in the countryside, heading up towards the Dutch border, but not in Holland, I guarantee to you, in Germany. I've fortunately got no neighbors. I've got horses. I've got bees. I've got dogs. There's cats. There's deer and everything else, and hens and everything else that one would have when one lives in the countryside. And most importantly, no neighbors. <laughs> Just horses. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm as ha when I'm here, I'm very, very happy because I don't actually have to see anyone or talk to anyone. As in, in person, I get a little bit of privacy. I think that's probably the balance you get when you spend so much time in hotels and aeroplanes. Absolutely. And that's what I need. Well, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of moving a horse. Uh, you mentioned that 95% of what you do is in the preparation aspect. So mm -hmm. how long, if we're looking at Tokyo 2020, when did you start preparing for this? We start with Tokyo about four years ago. So you, you'll spend four or five years leading up to a major event like an Olympic Games. Because basically, you can move, horses move from and to most parts of the globe every day of the week. That's common traffic. That's normal. And they move with standard operating procedures whereby they go from one country to the other. And they might have to have extended periods of quarantine or whatever they might have. But that is not optimum to keep horses in peak competition fitness. So our job leading up to Olympic Games for all the preparatory time we put into this is to create SOPs, standard operating procedures in the host country to ensure an absolute streamless, smooth arrival process, uneventful, to get the horses as swiftly and as calmly as possible into their stables at the host venue. And that involves 
primarily education, bonding with stakeholders, creating stakeholder groups, and creating an organization of all those various stakeholders that work hand-in-hand to ensure this smooth transfer. If I go on a tangent, if one of your leading carriers, or Lufthansa, for example, in Germany, if Lufthansa is going to open a new hub in Lima and Peru, and they've got first-class passengers to think about, they're not just going to turn up with a 380 or with a 747. They're going to spend weeks and months working out all their procedures there to make it an absolute seamless process for those passengers. They've been doing, they do it now every day, but that's before it even started. So in our case, every time we've got an Olympic Games, I've been doing this in, since Seoul in 1988. So I'm probably about the ninth or 10th Olympic Games now. None of the host countries have ever received horses in this magnitude before or at this level of, this level of peak fitness. So that's why everything has to be rewritten to create the optimal SO So how many, absolutely, how many horses are we talking about for an Olympic Games? Uh, You're talking about about 320 horses, 326 horses for an Olympic and Paralympic Games. So you've got, of course, the Olympic Games you've got first, and then uh, about 10 days later, you've then got the Paralympic Games. So they they both go hand in hand with each other. So how does that amount of horses compare to something like the... Uh, oh, an equestrian World Cup or a regular event? We don't, you don't have a question. Well, you've got, well, that's a, a loose one, if I may. Okay. Uh, you've got a World Cup final every year in show jumping that takes place either in North America or in Europe. And you tend to have 40 or 50, no, quite not that many. You'd have 30 or maybe 40 horses either going from Europe to North America, or you might have 15 horses going from North America to come to Europe because the World Cup finals tend to be in Europe every year, with the exception of Kuala Lumpur in 2007. The World Equestrian Games in Tryon in North Carolina last year in your country, we've brought in 530 horses from Europe, and then another 40-odd horses came from South America, and then there was three or four other individual horses came from various points around the globe. So Olympic Games is quite a significant significant event, because don't forget, of course, Olympics is its sport, but at the end of the day, it's the success of those nations competing at Olympic Games, thereby they secure, with their good results, they secure future funding from the National Olympic committees to go into the next Olympic cycle. That's why it's so important. And in our sport, uh, our unique sport where we've got men competing against women on a, an animal, on a horse, there's years and years go into the preparation. Probably like any other sport. I mean, I'm not authority on, on swimming or anything, but you'll be spending uh, six, seven years getting a horse up to this level of competition and for the rider an awful lot longer. So how old are the Olympic horses generally? Uh, generally, you can't have generally, but I, and I don't know if you can quote me on this. I think it's between well, they can start they can start from eight years of age, but on average, that twelve to fourteen is a sort of average age that they would be the Olympic horses, and the Paralympic horses would be slightly older. And the reason for that being is possibly the more mature horses they're simply more mature for the paraquestrian uh, riders that are riding them. So they also have a whole lot of training to do before they get to Olympic caliber. 
Oh, absolutely. It's years and years and years and years and years. It's, you can't, it's not comparable with you getting a new dog tomorrow and you might spend six, six months working out sitcom and all the different commands you've got. To actually bond with a horse uh, or to get a horse up to that level, it takes many, many years of hard work. And our job is to let the National Olympic Committees and the National Federations and the National Paralympic Committees focus purely on the sport and that, aspect, and that aspect, which is huge in itself. And our job is to take care of everything involved with health, transport, quarantine, logistics, and the back-of-house stable management, of course, at these venues to make sure that we do our bits. The federations can, con can concentrate exclusively on their bit. That's how I like to see it anyway. Okay, so what you need to obviously fly this horse from one country to another. When does that preparation for the actual trip begin for the horse? That depends very much from country to country where you're going, because the import requirements from Korea in 88 to Hong Kong in 2008 to Sydney in 2000 to Rio in 2016 and to Tokyo in 2020, the import requirements for every country are totally different. For example, 2024, as you know, the Olympic Games are going to be in Paris. And you know, or you maybe you don't, but 85% of all competing horses are based in the European Union. So that means the preparation, the actual transport logistics side of that, ex of that exercise for the athletes in 2024 will start a couple of days before they leave, whereby for the Olympic athletes going to Tokyo, that preparation, they're already starting it now, to be perfectly honest with you. And you might say, that's ridiculous, Martin. No, not at all, because you've got the test event in August this year in Tokyo, and the test event is eventing. And as you know, eventing is three individual disciplines. Well, three individual segments. You've got dressage, you've got cross-country, and you've got your show jumping. So the horses, to build up to peak competition fitness, that process starts many, many months in advance to make sure that on the given day, when the cross-country takes place at an Olympic Games, they are absolutely smack bang on. So that process starts many months in advance, and we're already, now we're in May, we've started with the horses going to compete in the test event in Tokyo in August. They've already very much started their preparations, and the teams, the National Olympic Committees for next year, will be starting their campaigns if on the assumption that they're qualified, they'll be starting their campaigns now. They'll be working out. These horses don't compete. I'm not sure about other athletes. They don't compete every weekend. They only do so many events in a given year, in eventing, for example. So they'll be working out exactly their calendars all the way through, working back from the departure date that they will leave to travel to Tokyo. They'll be working backwards on that. And then on the flip side, working forwards from the departure date to get that peak competition fitness for the, when they actually start competing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. How far in advance of the competition is the horse actually arriving? That depends from discipline to discipline. Now, you might ask me, why is that? It's quite simple. I've got to go on a tangent now. The show jumping horses are very are most of the top five-star horses, that's the, the top level, are accustomed to flying. They're mature horses, they're used to flying, so it's nothing new for them, so their recovery time is a little bit is, is shorter. Possibly just like you and I, if I fly to Tokyo on Friday, I'll get there on Saturday, I'll do a full day's work on Saturday, I'll sleep all Saturday night, and I'll get back to work again on Sunday. You might spend Saturday night and Sunday night looking at the ceiling and counting flies or counting sheep and not making any progress, because I'm experienced at it, and I'm used to it, and you're not exactly the same believe it or not with horses because horses like you and I are mammals 
difference. There's no difference, and their recovery times are the same as yours. So the show jumping horses need a lesser re recovery time. The event horses need a slightly longer recovery time. That's just the way it is. They like that little bit more time. And the dressage horses also need a little bit longer. So in fact, it does vary from discipline to discipline. But the average is you're, you're looking at between five and ten days with the various disciplines. So Can I go on a tangent for you? Yes. Can I go on a tangent oh, for please you? do. Right. I get on one of your, and I'm not being anti-American, I get one of your economy class flights in America, and I am totally stressed because you've got stress in the security queues. You can't get a cup of coffee. You're stressed standing waiting at the gate. Then you've got to push yourself onto the airplane. Then you've got to try and find where you're going to put your little computer bag. And if you get a spot for your little computer bag, you're then told to remove it and put it between your legs because someone else has got a bigger one that needs to go in your spot. You fly, this can be not in America, this could be in Europe as well. You fly really cramped, you're stressed, the hostess is maybe having a bad morning and everything's going against you. And then she spills coffee on your trousers. You have a bumpy flight, you arrive and your suitcase isn't there. Or you get collected by an Emirates in a 500 Mercedes. It drives you to the, to the airport. You get out of the car. Somebody takes your passport and they take your um, suitcase. They escort you to the first class lounge. They then bring you your passport. They bring you your boarding pass. Your suitcase is already checked through. When everybody else has boarded the aircraft, they take you by the hand and say, are you ready to go now? And they'll bring you onto the aircraft. They sit you in your little seat. You get a glass of champagne, close your eyes, relax, and you arrive. At the other end, you get off the aircraft first. You're first through immigration. Your bag is waiting for you. They put you in a chauffeur-driven car, and they send you off to your hotel, and your hotel room's ready as well. So it's no difference with horses. Our job is to create this, and I won't say first-class experience, and I don't know what the word is in English because it just sounds like, oh, it's a very flippant thing that anyone could say, but to create this first-class experience for the horses that they are totally unstressed because you know as well as I do, if you arrive somewhere having had a relaxing experience getting there and that you're not stressed, your recovery period is going to be vastly shorter than somebody's had a really shitty flight down the back, if you see what I mean. So that's what we've got to do. And that's where at these exotic airports around the world that we go through, we go to with our horses on these big projects, that's where we've got to redesign all airport operations and convince all airport stakeholders that a better way to do things to create this smooth, seamless, first-class transfer for the horses from the time those aircraft arrive until they get into their stables. Because once a horse gets into a stable, it can relax, and most importantly, it can pee, I'm, as in, I mean, urinate. Because a number of horses, or many horses, can't actually comfortably get in a position on an aeroplane to urinate, and one thing they'd really like to do is to urinate. So for me, it's very important to get them into their stables as smoothly, calmly, and swiftly as possible so they can have a pee, and then they will start the recovery period. So that's basically what we're trying to do. Did that make you, sense? Anne, yeah, it does, and I'm glad you talked about the urination because that was one of my questions. Do, do you find then that while they're in the air, then they'll, they don't want to drink as much, but they need no, to drink? 
The trick is in flying horses, what we've got to do, hydration is one of the most important things. Just like you, like I've got to go again, the mammals, just like you and I. Mm -hmm. If you have three gin and tonics, you're going to feel pretty blur when you get where you're going. If you've drunk two liters of water, you'll feel absolutely fine. We, it's crucial for us to keep those horses hydrated. And how we do that is quite simply, if you've got a relaxed horse in the right frame of mind and he's comfortable in in, in the environment he's in, they will hydrate they will drink so that's most most important for us to keep the horses well hydrated that and of course the airflow in the in the aeroplane itself you know if it's too hot in an aeroplane or if it's too cold if it's too hot you know you're going to get sick because somebody right down the back has coughed or sneezed i don't mean to be disgusting but it's true and you get a bug because of that nasty warm air or if it's too cold you're not going to feel comfortable either we've got to get the optimum temperature on that aircraft for the horses to create the environment for them that they will not have any travel sickness when they arrive. As in travel sickness, I mean an extended recovery period getting over jet lag. So besides the recovery time, what kind of illnesses or injuries are you concerned about on on a long-haul flight? None. And I'll tell you why none, quite simply. Our job is we we deal with the horses every day of the week. That's all we do. And all our crew, all they do is they take care of horses. So for a horse to get injured is absolutely the exception. I mean, how often have you traveled as a passenger, you see somebody getting hurt? It's so, it's it's very, very, so for a horse to get injured is very, 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 um, one in X, I don't, it, it's not even mentionable because it never happens. I mean, we've always got vets at the airport, but how often the vets get to do something is very, 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 very rarely. But they're there, as of course, as a safety precaution, but they don't do anything, to be honest with you, except observe the process and be ready, just like at, at probably any sporting event, you've got the ambulance sitting there. So in transit, we don't expect that. And horses getting sick, not at all, no, because if the horses have a good flight, if I've got to have a horrible flight to Japan on Friday, I might feel pretty lousy on Saturday. If I have a good flight on Friday, I'll be absolutely fine. It's exactly the same with the horses. And don't forget, these horses are coming to the airport. They've already met the receiving country's health requirements. They are in peak competition fitness. So they're at the absolute top of their game. So all their systems are working 100%. So you wouldn't be expecting a horse to have any detrimental effects, not at all. Although, of course, the recovery period, as in getting over jet lag, with one horse might take a day longer than another till he's got his system in place that he knows it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner when he's supposed to sleep, but that's the same as humans. So how well do you... Sorry, go ahead. I keep on making the comparison to humans because there's so many things that are similar. The only difference is a horse can't actually tell you if it's got an ailment or something. It can't tell you that, but it's your job to read that horse from the outside just to make sure it's as comfortable as possible and it doesn't have anything. How well do you know each of the horses that you're moving? Some of them you know remarkably well. That would be, those would be the characters that would be more inclined to perhaps have a go or try to um, be more entertaining at the airport. I'm just talking about horses that might be a bit more excitable. But the majority of horses, you drop the ramp and you see that horse and you spend the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten seconds with that horse that it takes you to attach, to untie the horse and to put on whatever form of lead rope you're using to lead that horse. That's the time you've got to get to know the horse. I mean, you can see 
him. You can see his confirmation immediately. You can see if it's settled, if it's nervous. You just see the. You just subconsciously, like an. Air, I go again. An air hostess picking up passengers walking into an aeroplane. They can see. Oops, he's nervous. Oh, she's nice and calm. He might have had a drink. Not sure about that child. A bit of runny nose. So we. You do that process in eight or ten seconds when you're actually um, getting ready to, to load or unload horse. You'd see how it is and what it is. Tangent, World Equestrian Games in Tryon last year, we had the eight FEI disciplines arrived on different flights coming into Greenville. And when you opened the ramps, you could tell the discipline of the horse. As soon as you opened the ramp, you could actually identify the discipline of the horse simultaneously at the same time that you subconsciously identified how that horse was, because they're all different personalities and they're all different characters. And that's how you've got to treat them. So what kind of things, when you say an excitable horse, what does that mean? What, what do they do? Oh, they just a slightly more. That they might just be a little more, bit more enthusiastic to unload or to to uh, to load. Some might. It, it, it's just their, their characters. You might have a stallion that's a bit bit more excitable because he knows that there's mares in the area. But it's it's ter- It's not a, It's not an issue whatsoever. You're just identifying the demeanour or the character of that of that individual before you load or or you unload them. Some might be they're sort of amber along behind you. Some might be more enthusiastic to go uh, trotting across to the to the loading ramps. So it's just you see in that very short space of time what sort of character is there, what sort of personality. Now what kind of plane are these horses are the is the horse transport? Horses can travel in numerous wide-bodied aircraft, so it varies uh, from 747s to 777s to 777s. You've got MD-11 aircraft, you've got A3 Airbus 300s, you've got 727s. There's a huge fleet of aircraft that can transport horses, but the reality is we just need the airframe. By the airframe, I mean the exterior bit of the aircraft, because we need an airframe that we can put the air stables into. We, of course, need a, uh, we need a cockpit crew, but we need the airframe that we put in the horse stables. We need the belly of the aircraft for horse equipment. And, of course, we need the seats for the attendants who are accompanying the horses. And you can do that in a large variety of aircraft around the world. But the most cost-effective and the most environmentally friendly aircraft to utilize at the moment are undoubtedly undoubtedly the triple seven aircraft, Boeing triple sevens. Are they all nonstop flights or do you have, they can only it be an totally, hour so, uh, so, so been, many hours in the air and then they have to not stop? Been, not being flippant, it totally and utterly depends on the routing and what the payload of the aircraft is. So if you've got a, a full aircraft of horses and a full belly of equipment, of course, you've got a lesser range in that aircraft than if you've only got one or two horses on board. So it varies very, very much on the routings. For example, going from Europe to Greenville last year for the World Equestrian Games, they were non-stop flights, which were perfect. We flew to Rio uh, in 2016. We had non-stop flights, and yet many of the flights going to the far east they'll make technical stops in the middle east and a technical stop means you change the crew and you refuel the aircraft before continuing on the way so it very much depends on where you're coming from and where you're going to okay so probably for sydney i was going to say for sydney there was a lot of stopping no, well, a lot is a lot is slightly. We stopped twice going to Sydney. We went. And we made a 90-minute technical stop in Dubai, and we made a 90-minute technical stop in Singapore. And the reason was in 2000 we were using a Lufthansa 
200 aircraft. That's the series uh, back in those days, and that's what the range they had back then. But the horses from Australia that competed in the 1964 Olympic Games, they came up to Europe on a ship. And that took an awful lot longer to come from Australia to England on a ship. And one of the chaps who accompanied the horses, they were actually in very, very comfortable containers. And he put jute. I don't know if you know what jute is. Jute is what farmers use to put sacks of grain. Perhaps they they still do it in America as well. So they put jute under the horse's hooves to make sure they didn't slip. And he rode the horses around the deck of the ship every day as they were en route to England prior to going to Tokyo. So distance is quite relative, actually. That would have been a fun ship to be on. Oh, Lord, yes, they had an absolute ball. I'm sure there's a huge amount of alcohol on there and had a great time. It was basically six weeks. No internet, no mobile phones, and no laptops. Can we get on that boat? (laughs) I know. It sounds like heaven, doesn't it? And, of course, you've got horses to keep you company. Back to Tokyo, you spent four years working on it. What are the, the stables like in Tokyo? They are going to be exceptionally impressive. They've been finalized. They've been finalized at the moment. They're making it a first class, as always. It's a first class complex. It's been built in the venue which is called Baji Cohen, as you probably know, and that's actually the same venue they had the Olympics in 1964. Uh, it's the same venue, but very, very, very nice uh, stables. They've been built new for this Olympic Games, and of course they've got a huge legacy because after the Olympic Games, it's a permanent structure, so that will then be used by, um, I believe, the Japan Racing Association after the Olympic Games. But really, really, really nice stables. It's a first-class venue, and they're very, very advanced with their planning. So what have there been issues in dealing with Japanese import criteria? No, not at all. I mean, issue would issue would sound something. An issue would be something negative. There's always challenges with all these. There's always challenges, but the 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 job is is not just to mitigate the challenges, but to find the the most the optimum conditions with all the authorities to facilitate the movement of these horses. And that's exactly what we're doing with uh, huge support from the uh, from the, all the Japanese authorities. I mean, I have to tell you, they really, really are very, very advanced, and they're doing a sterling job over there. And they're working with all of the authorities very, very closely involved in this process to make it as smooth and streamless as possible. And I don't mean to keep repeating those words, two words, but that's what it gets down to. That's the bottom line. That's what it's all about, this smooth, streamless process. That's what all the work's about. So what are some of the challenges you are working on mitigating? I think... You've basically got, in every country, you've got a standard procedure, how they might receive cargo, how they might receive passengers, how they might receive horses. And you've had this procedure that's been in place historically for many, many, many years in these countries. So we are trying to change these operating procedures, to optimize operating procedures, to create this absolute seamless seamless transfer for the horses. And the challenge is not, the challenge is much more, it's, it's not a challenge. It's much more the time that you need to invest to bond with the authorities that they can understand and comprehend exactly what you're trying to achieve. Just like you admitted a few minutes ago that you might know a huge amount about horses. That's possibly the case with many of the authorities in, in Japan that we're dealing with at the airports there. They're not familiar with horses. So our job is to not educate because that sounds like you're teaching a subordinate or something. It's nothing like that. But our job is to work with them to explain and let them comprehend exactly what we need to do, and then we can achieve our goals. 
Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's basically to try, you've got in your head, I mean, I know from A to Z exactly what we need to do and what we've got to do, but you've got every airport in the world is unique. Not any airport in the world is made for horses. It's a unique commodity that comes through these airports, but you've just got to optimize everything that you've got. And you can't have a standard operating procedure identical in every country because no two airports are the same and no two countries receiving or or, or dispatching procedures are the same. So you've just got to work through all those, I won't say hurdles, but work with all the authorities to create this seamless process. What makes an airport easier or more difficult to work with? Small and regional is for us absolutely perfect. For example, Greenville Spartanburg Airport, absolutely perfect, brilliant, because it's a small regional airport and they were delighted to have us. So it's very, very easy. They've got long runways, a dedicated crew, lovely, lovely people to work with, and you can bond with the people straight away and it works. If I then tried to do this sort of operation in London Heathrow Airport or at JFK, I wouldn't have hope in Haley's because quite simply, those ginormous airports with the massive volume they've got going through there, the airport authorities simply can't dedicate what you need to make this happen. So that's why we always aim for small regional airports. And a small regional is might sound derogatory to the airport. I don't mean it like that at all. I mean, Greenville-Spartenburg, which is uh, the airline code GSP, it just happens to be, it's not a huge international hub, and that's why it was perfect for us. And we've got it, for example, in Belgium, in Liège in Belgium, and Liège is located about an hour and a half from Brussels. It's, again, a small airport where if you run out of water, they're quite happy. The fire brigade will come out to an aircraft to give you more water. It's things like that. It's small, it's regional, and you know everybody. And that's what makes it so much easier. So that's what we always try to aim for as, far, as much as we can. So for London 2012, did you find a, a smaller airport on the outskirts and not without, use with, without meaning to sound flippant, uh, as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, 85% of all horses are actually based in Europe anyway, which mm-hmm. means that they all, they all came per ferry. So all oh, the horses... Oh, yeah, in, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. All the horses in Central Europe, the majority of those 85% percent of horses are actually based in Belgium, Holland, and Germany. That's a fact. So going to London, all they did was they drove down to Calais, they jumped in the Channel Tunnel or jumped on a ferry, and an hour and a half later they were in, in Dover, and then they drove up to London. Exactly the same as going to Paris in 2024. So in London, I don't believe we flew one single horse directly into the United Kingdom because they were all already either there or they were in Central Europe, Central Western Europe. Okay. So Tokyo is going to be very different in that they'll all be, they won't be in Asia. Well, no, they, they, if Tokyo will be different, but it's no different to it's no different to uh, to Rio or Atlanta or anywhere else. So you'll have 85% will be in Europe. You'll have, of course, some horses based in North America, as in Canada and the United St- and, the, and the United States. And you'll, of course, have some horses based in Australasia, Australia, and New Zealand. But the vast majority will be in Europe. Why? 
that's where all the competition is happening and they've got to be competing against their peers and I'm sure that's identical with all the other sports you deal with because Europe is that's where the focal point is of equestrian sport I'm not saying it's the only place that's where the focal point is of the top level equestrian sport please don't misquote me on that one you've still got the Rolex and Lexus you've got huge competitions in America that are enormously significant but the most competition against your peers is taking place in Europe Right, right. Yeah, it's like other sports. Like handball is a very European sport, and like table tennis and badminton are very big in Asia, comparatively. So that that makes sense. Do you have horses that are like, oh, just get me off this plane, or I'd much rather be riding on the train or in a in a truck? Not, not really. No, I mean you have some horses that say, "Thanks be to God, we're here." That's just you see, oh, they're so delighted to be unloaded. But most of them these days, it's, it's. I, I'm not joking. They actually travel so well, and they're traveling in very, very optimal circumstances. They're very comfortable up there. They really are. I mean, it's a lot more comfortable getting on a flight from here to New York than it would be for horses going on a 12-hour journey by road, uh, driving around North America in places. Because it's a smooth ride. Because you've got crews who are dead, the, the cockpit crews. They don't, this is also very, very important. You've been on little business flights, I'm sure, on a Friday evening that you know full well the captain's as desperate to get home as you are. He revs up the en- engines, he goes tearing down the uh, taxiway, turns a left turn, full thrust, and he goes tearing off, and he, he climbs as quickly as he can. You've been on that experience, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So our guys. We push them back really slowly. They indicate, they very, very gently pull off. They're always indicating to the horses which direction they're going to go. Now, you won't get this one, but if you're driving a car with a two-horse trailer behind your car, you can't just drive around a corner. You've got to let the horse know, oh, we're going to go right here, or we're going to go left here. The, the pilots do exactly the same for us with our horses. A very g- gentle taxi. It's very smooth onto the runway, and they don't tearing off down the runway they roll first which means the horses can get their optimal balance and then we've got a very shallow takeoff and not a sharp curve but they'll fly for a number of kilometers before they start turning case in point las vegas in 2008 or 2009 we had a federal express md11 with all the european horses flying back from the world cup finals in las vegas and i was standing at just outside the end of the runway after we'd loaded the horses and we saw the taxi and we couldn't actually see the aircraft had started moving and it was a lady pilot we couldn't see the start moving because it was so gentle to start and once that aircraft had taken off we probably watched it for 10 minutes and it still hadn't started its turn it climbed so gently and then after about 10 minutes it must have started to turn because it had to at some stage uh, do that the pilots the crews we've got are very very good so the horses don't know and if they, when they don't know they're in the air but they know the feeling when they're going to be changing direction or they're ascending or, or, or climbing Does that i want to fly with the horses you would really 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 enjoy the experience because it's very calm how did the crews deal with turbulence well, you try to you avoid it as much as possible. I mean, right. they will let us know if there's going to be turbulence that is unavoidable. But often, I mean, with the technology you've got available today, you can often climb and climb over it, or you can fly around it. And that's what we try to do as much as possible. Although in some reason, I mean, sometimes it is simply unavoidable. 
but they do try to fly around the turbulence as much as possible. But the horses, again, just like if you've got passengers in an aeroplane, if you've got competent stewards and stewardesses taking care of the passengers, they're not going to be afraid or worried or nervous. Horses are exactly the same. It's no different. Turbulence is no different than in the comparison to a car driving over a road with potholes. Let's be honest. You go boom, boom, boom. Right. And if they don't have the pressures of, say, commercial aircrafts where they have to make the schedule in a certain way, they can... Well, they they do have the pressures because, of course, these are all commercial aircraft and you're paying for the aircraft and you're paying for the fuel burn, you're paying for everything else. But it goes hand in hand. The airlines, when they take horses, they know this is part of the deal. We're going to give them a nice, smooth ride. Speaking of paying, how, how much does it cost or how much will it cost to get like the horses from Europe to Tokyo? Quite a lot. <laughs> but it's the same. If you you and your daughter take a flight tomorrow and you book your ticket tomorrow and you book your daughter's ticket in two weeks uh, later on the same airline, same flight, same timing, there's going to be a difference in price. So the, the, the pricing for these flights is, of course, quite expensive. But one, one of the most significant factors, of course, is jet fuel, because jet fuel represents about 40% of the cost. So as fuel prices go up, for example, fuel prices went up yesterday quite significantly after it was identified that a couple of Saudi ships had got damaged in, um, in their part of the world. So fuel has a very significant, significant influence on the, on the flight costs. And do, do the athletes pay for the, it, the, it, the it, cost it, or it, 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 it varies from organization to it varies very very much some of the time it's invitational whereby the host organizing committee will pay for everything some of the times the athletes are playing for, paying for themselves so that varies very much from competition to competition okay and horses of course have to have passports absolutely horses have got passports and everything is recorded in those passports and the passports are issued by the national breeding association and of course the identification card by the fei which is the ruling body of equestrian sports around the world so every horse has got a passport with all its details in there all its vaccination history in there and all the places where the horse has competed its breeding history everything is in those in those passports they're much more comprehensive than the passports that you or i have gotten our bags did they put a picture on the pet passport no they don't you've got an oh. identification you've got an identification page where the identification of the horse is clearly marked because horses like human beings change over the years because you we all look probably a little bit younger many many years ago in our first passports and we look maybe a little bit older now so a horse because the passport can stay with the horse all its life you've got the markings in there so it shows if it's got a fall a fall is where the the hair twists around so you've got falls you've got all horses or the majority of horses have got markings some have got brands on them they've got markings on their legs they've got markings on their faces they've got markings on their body so because a horse can live anywhere up to 30, 35 years, and you don't, regu- you don't often change the passports, if at all. That's why you've got a marking diagram as opposed to a photograph. And, of course, they've all got microchips. So they're all microchipped as well. And that's the, it can, you, through the microchip, you can find the full identification of the horse. Where, where do they put the chip? In the, in the horse's necks. Okay. Just like your dog and your cat. Yeah, I was going to say, it's the same right. for a dog. Yeah, it goes in the same spot. Interesting. Martin, how did you get involved in this business? I don't really know. I, I've always, I used to ride myself. I had a bit of a very heavy crash when I was younger, and that was my riding career was finished. And then at, this somehow evolved 
that I started moving horses and then I, I purposely, consciously moved to Germany in 1988. And that's when uh, Peden started in Germany in 1988. Uh, that's 31 years ago. I moved over here with the object of moving horses around the world. And I based myself in Dusseldorf quite simply because it's centralized. If you look at the map geographically to Frankfurt, Paris, Frankfurt Brussels, Amsterdam, and Paris isn't too far away. So it's, it's, I'm right in the middle of, of logistically, I'm ideally uh, located in Europe to do this job. And it's just something that's evolved over all those, um, over the years. But it's because I don't ride anymore, and of course I couldn't give up horses, that I somehow just landed here. Not uh, it, it, one of those things that evolved. Is there anything else important that we've missed when we think about how the horses are getting there? It's a fascinating part of the industry or the business that we're involved in and it's also we're very lucky to be in this part of the industry because we get to participate in the delivery of these amazing animals going to their top competitions so it is it's a very important aspect what we do and we're just very lucky that we're able to do it how long after the competition do they go home do they stick around for a little while or no Generally not. So basically the competition finishes, we'd always build in 24 or 48 hours contingency, quite simply contingency, and then we would fly them home. Okay, because uh, I, was, I was wondering, like, do they need a day or so to recover from competition? I, I, I'm not joking. It's ex it, I, I, I'm saying it again. It's the same as all your athletes. Many of your athletes will leave on the same night, but we always build in a day or two of contingency because we, we're using charter aircraft most of the time, which means it's a time-definite delivery, and you've got to have contingency with unexpected acts of force majeure that you simply can't anticipate because they are force majeure. So that's why we always build in 24, 48 hours contingency before we fly them home. And, of, co of course, to give those horses some time to... Uh, to rest and recover from the uh, just to basically to rest recover and get in the frame of mind to jump in an airplane again when they're at a big event like the olympics and do they have like friends do they have like or, you know is it like the olympic village for the athletes oh, totally. Yeah. totally 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 because don't forget these horses are competing against each other all year round so all the riders know each other at this level all the grooms know each other the vets do the federation officials everybody knows each other so it is yet very much like an olympic uh, your olympic village experience although i have to tell you in nine olympic games i've never been to an olympic village but it's what i imagine it it's like very much so yes back of house in the stables that's where it all happens and uh, you've got everybody mixing in there with the horses and it's it's one big happy family yeah because it was one i was wondering like do the horses go hey there's my friend who i don't see oh, yeah. very often oh yeah they see they see each other because the horses will be out grazing and the grooms will be friends okay. anyway so the groom who's a friend will bring his horse and stand next to the other horse they, they, they know each other yes of course they do okay. and you've always got a few that like each other more and a few that like each other less and that's why you make a very good stable plan which is also paramount to make sure you've got a, everybody is compatible where they're actually positioned in their stables a bit like doing a rooming, a rooming list at an Olympic venue or anywhere if you get the rooms all screwed up it's not going to be a happy event happy event right. oh, so this is like when we go to the dog park exactly and you, exactly, and you have to keep exactly. that dog away from that dog because he's mean or he's fight so the, the horses have that same of interaction. course because 
if, if you've got a, an alpha, what I would call an alpha stallion, a breeding stallion who considers himself an alpha, and he may be an alpha stallion in his world, in his part of the world, and you've got a lot of other alpha stallions who are also alpha where they come from. So, of course, you're not going to have a load of alpha stallions standing next to each other because that will only create a little um, bit of confrontation. Same as dogs. Same as your husband's, probably. <laughs> We are not going to go there, Martin. We're not that kind of show. <laughs> no, I'm not either. But yes, of course, you, you've got to allow for all these. And of course, you're not going to put a, a, a mare beside a stallion. There's all those things. The, it's very much common sense. I spend a long time putting stable plans together to make sure that everybody is happy, happy and it all works, because that's one of our jobs as well. But it's, it's no different than doing a, uh, setting up a, a hotel occupancy, who's going to share rooms with who and who's going to be next door and who's going to have adjoining rooms, all those sorts of things. Thank you so much, Martin. You can find more information about Pete and Bloodstock at peteandbloodstock.com. That's P-E-D-E-N, Bloodstock. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can also follow them on Facebook, and they put a lot of videos on Facebook of what they're doing with the horses and how they transport them. It's really cool. So um, we posted one of those in our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast, because they got a, a group members got a little sneak peek of what we were talking about today. So if you go and join our group, you too will start getting some sneak peeks of what we're working on. He was fun. He was a lot of fun. And we talked about it right after the interview. But I think our favorite part was how he made Spartanburg German <laughs> when he was talking about the, the airport. It was Spartanburg. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's the Carolinas. Thanks for trying to make us Americans sound classy. I know. I wanted to say, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> but he was. What he knows about horses and just the institutional knowledge is amazing. It's I... so incredible. And it's funny because we were on Skype with our cameras on and he was on the telephone. And thank goodness, because I think our jaws were open most of the time. If we weren't talking, we just sat there in amazement at how much work and effort it takes to bring these horses to another country. It's one of those aspects of the Olympics. And we, we talk about this all the time. Somehow it just happens and we never think about it. And then you talk to the people who do it and you realize how complex and amazing. It's amazing that the Olympics happens at all. When yeah. you really get down to the right. nitty gritty, it's like, how did this many moving parts all come, come together? Big? Yes, it is amazing. And beyond the fact that they're shipping hundreds of horses and you forget how many horses are involved in the competition, but also the fact that it takes four years to get a horse to the Olympics. So basically, once right. they finish one, they start the next one. And every time you add a new city, there's more airports to make friends with and work with and part of me was just like oh you must be so happy paris is is next right and even los angeles i have a feeling they've done a lot of flying in and right. out of lax right before so these will probably be two easier ones but certainly paris because there'll be so few horses that have to come from too far right 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 but it's nice to get that little bit of insight and Gives me a huge appreciation for what he has to go through. 209th a year on the road. Oh, That's insane. I think he deserves a sugar cube. <laughs> he does. Maybe an apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Martin. Uh, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. 
tofu. Our Team Olympic Fever shotgun shooter, Kim Rohde, broke another record, won a fourth consecutive World Cup title in Changwon, South Korea. So congratulations to her. She's just killing it. She, I don't think she ages. Seriously, is, is it like the, 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 the rifle re- of Dorian Gray or the something? reflexes. It's oh. incredible. Also, our Team Olympic Fever hockey skater, Brianna Decker, was inducted to the Wisconsin Hockey Hall of Fame. As she should be. I had a little bit of fun convergence of tofu. Oh, really? Yes. Lauren Gibbs, our bobsledder, posted a video from when she went to see Stars on Ice. And the video that she posted was of Charlie White and Meryl Davis. And when we spoke to it, I said, oh, my goodness. Is this like a break in the space-time continuum (laughs) if two of our former guests are in the same room at the same time? I love it. That was fun. Well, in some other Olympic news, I saw this fun little bit. In Taiwan, the Minister of Education said that if the nation wins at least four gold medals at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, he is willing to buy 1,000 cups of pearl milk tea as a treat to match a legislator's pledge to buy 1,000 fried chicken cutlets. I'm not even sure I understand this. I don't understand it either. But who who are getting these treats? I, I don't know. But yeah, we're, maybe they go to the Olympians. Or are they just going to hand them out in front of town uh, or city I, hall? I or don't know. The, so we're going to have to ministry? keep. An, we're going to have to keep an eye on this. Taiwan does have uh, some possibilities. They've got the world's number one badminton player right now, uh, Tai Tzu Ying. There's also a what they call the pommel horse prince. Lee Chikai, yes, uh, three-time world champion weightlifter Kuo Sing Chun, and a javelin champion Cheng Chao Tsun. Okay, so you would eat your fried chicken cutlet and drink your, your pearl, pearl milk tea. Yes, that sounds like a very nice afternoon snack. Actually, it does. It does. So, you know, hopefully we'll have that fantasy Olympic game again. So keep those names in mind if oh, you yeah. are, you know trying to pick people to root for and cheer for. I want some fried chicken. (laughs) Can we get in on this, Minister of Education? (laughs) If they're just handing them out outside of the ministry, (laughs) just walk up and say, I want my fried chicken and my pearl milk tea, please. I know. Well, we will definitely keep tabs on that because there's there's nothing we like more. It's food and beverage specials. I mean, Olympic tie-in food and beverage specials, could it get any better? Oh, I know. And I just saw today that came over the news that Team GB just signed a sponsorship with McVitie's, the biscuit brand. Do you think they're going to make Olympic cookies? I don't know. I also saw that the swimming pool from the 1952 Helsinki Olympics and really the 1940 Olympics because Helsinki was supposed to host then and then that got canceled because of World War II. But the pool has opened for the summer. And that made me very happy because it was a legacy thing. Oh, I and like that. And you can that. go. It's a big outdoor pool and you can swim. It's huge. It's got a big diving platform at the end. And coincidentally, we had a lovely email from listener Manu, who lives in Helsinki. And Manu and I were talking a little bit. Uh, I asked him, well, have you swum in the pool? <laughs> and he said, As you will. Like, that's a totally normal question. He said, well swam there when when they were kid but it's a very nice place to go swimming especially when the weather's nice it's on my list 
And if you go to Helsinki and you swim at the pool, let us know. Take pictures for me. Manu told me, and I had forgotten about this, they're renovating the Olympic Stadium. And so it will reopen next year in 2020. Okay. Go renew my passport right now. It's pretty much the only venue that's still able to host major events, he said. Hmm. So speaking of legacies, I have a little beef. And I wanted to talk about this with you because I saw on ESPN that the uh, International Gymnastics Federation had just named Antwerp as the host of the World Championships in 2023. You know who else bid for those championships? Tokyo. And they did not get it. So when we complain about legacy and venues going unused... I think there should be a mandate the, that the federations should have to have championships within a, in those venues again at the, that host city within a certain time frame. Right, because they all have venues. They all have amazing venues. Why aren't we going back and using those venues? Right. And then people, people, the general public or journalists will go, well, p- these venues are a waste of money. Nobody's using them anymore. Well, it's really up to the international federations to keep that legacy going. Because these these buildings were built or repurposed for their sports. So why are you... But on the flip side, cities that could not handle an Olympics should not be shut out from hosting other championships. Like Antwerp, even though it has hosted Olympics, probably couldn't handle an Olympics anymore. It's not a big enough city anymore. Right. So but, should it be totally shut out? But they also held the Gymnastics World Championships in 2013. So it's 10 years between their, their hosting. Tokyo last hosted it in 2011. Oh. So they're not even, they're cycling through cities anyway. In, in a sense. I mean, the mm-hmm. I, I did a little research and found that they don't have championships on an Olympic year. So it was in 2011, it was Tokyo, then Antwerp, then Nanning in China, Glasgow, Montreal, Doha, then this year it will be in Stuttgart, then 21 it'll be Copenhagen, then Liverpool, then Antwerp again. Oh, and then you have the issue if you have, what, five in a row in Europe. Right. As well. Yeah. Okay, I I see where you're going. Right, so I... I... And, well, to be fair, again, gymnastics in Tokyo, I'm not sure how much of a... I mean, I wonder if they're not going back to Tokyo because 2011, there wasn't enough interest. That is a good and legitimate question, although that's also being dismissive of something that happened 10 years ago. Fair. And it's also interesting that Tokyo not only has to work on getting these Olympics now, but I, I don't know who's behind the bid for the gymnastics competition, but it's interesting that there are organizing efforts going on plus bidding efforts going on at the same time right because just like when we were talking to martin you're always thinking of the next event right very quickly you got to switch off right so at least they're trying it would be i didn't have a chance to look at any other international federations and see if they were planning to use tokyo in future competitions it's interesting because i don't i also don't know how many federations plan that far out in their world championships or even cups. So I don't know, maybe they'll get uh, a cup in Tokyo soon over the next couple of years. That would be something. But I do think it's up to that legacy isn't necessarily all resting on, well, it doesn't rest on the IOC because they don't 
take any responsibility for that. It shouldn't rest on it should or the rest, NGOs. Right. And yeah, it doesn't rest on the Olympic organization. It kind of rests on the organizing committee to think about what happens next. But it really also is like, hey, we gotta build strong relations with the international federations and go, dudes. We have a facility it. for we you. We have facilities. That's very you nice. Better use it and you know, don't make them don't make an organizing uh I'm not sure they should make host cities jump through tons of hoops to have to bid for another event right well, around their games. That, doesn't that go back to that conversation that we had several months ago about the very bizarre family tree of the IOC and the NGOs <gasps> and the sports federations mm-hmm. and how they're all siloed off? not necessarily talking to one another, certainly not working hand in glove with each other. Right. And so each one is functioning as if the other doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. except when they want money. Right. Or when they see, like, they'll see each other at something like Sport Accord, which is a big conference where people do a lot of clan handing. I understand. I don't know. That was, that was disappointing to me. Yeah. And you have to wonder how much, how much it costs to put together a bid for a uh, world championships that's that's something i don't know i don't know what cities do for putting those packages together because it does take time to put something together and and incentivizing people i would put it on our list but our list is pretty long but if anybody out there knows if tokyo is getting to host some world cups and championships beyond the olympics let us know we are very interested to find out because we love legacy On that note, I think we should wrap it up for this week, and we will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Absolutely perfect. Brilliant.